If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Empire with me, Anita Arnon. And me, William Durimple. Today, in many ways, this episode that we're bringing you today is almost an end to a mini trilogy within our Ottoman series. And it deals with the way that the Allies carved up the Middle East during and after the First World War. And it begins with Sykes-Picot. We had an enormous response to that episode. It continued last week with Lawrence of Arabia. Again, a huge response from you and the Arab Revolt. And and hopefully, you know, if you've got questions on this, we'll be dealing with those in a special Q&A session. Today, though, we sort of bring this to a a conclusion, this mini-series with the Balfour Declaration. We've mentioned it many times before. This is when the British promised the Jews a homeland in Palestine. So, I mean, I'm going to get, William, we got the letter handy because on November the 2nd, 1917, the Foreign Secretary, just to remind you, Arthur Balfour, he wrote a letter to Lord Rothschild, the leader of the Jewish community in the UK, and he made the very first public declaration of an intent that had, until this moment, been secret. His Majesty's Government view with favour the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavours to facilitate the achievement of this object, it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, or the rights and political status enjoyed by the Jews in any other country. So this is the Balfour Declaration. It's a, it's a publicly made pledge to create a Jewish settlement of Palestine, and it started in Britain. It did, I mean, sow the seeds. This is, this is unquestionable, though, for conflicts which continue to this very day. So for Jews, it's a glorious moment that started them on the journey towards statehood. For Palestinian, it marks the beginning of a dispossession and exile. In the words of the Jewish writer Arthur Kessler, one nation solemnly promised to a second nation the country of a third. Very good. It's a very, very good quote. Balfour himself put it with more pepper, Zionism, be it right or wrong, good or bad, is rooted in age-long traditions, in present needs, in future hopes, in far profounder import than the desires and prejudices of the 700,000 Arabs who now inhabit that ancient land. And with us to discuss this, we have a a really marvellous guest, Tom Segev, author of One Palestine Complete, Jews and Arabs Under the British Mandate, and he's written so many other fantastic books on the history of Israel. And the great biographer of of David Ben-Gurion, and one of the stars of our Jaipur Literature Festival. Tom, you were spectacular. It was an amazing session. Yeah, and you're joining us on the line from Jerusalem, so we're, we're very grateful for you. First of all, I mean, before we get into the meat of this, we should acknowledge that even discussing the history of this is going to make 
people angry because this is such a polarized conversation. It reaches deep into a sense of existential crisis for two different, very separate sides. It's very tricky water to navigate and you've been navigating it all your life. You are right that it's very controversial. Now, I don't know if there are any history teachers among our listeners, and I don't want to insult any history teacher, but my history teachers taught us that diplomatic relations, that history itself actually is based on reason. And um, the Balfour Declaration is one thing that is, is, is one proof that reason doesn't play a role here at all. <laughs> we were taught that the British took Palestine because they wanted to protect the Suez Canal, that they wanted to protect the way to India, that it was part of their strategic uh, in, in, in World War I. When historical archives opened in, in Britain, turned out that they abound letters, telegrams, and position papers, and many of them written by military personnel, senior militaries in Egypt, in the area. And they warn the government in London, do not take Palestine. Mm. Palestine means trouble. We do not need Palestine for any strategic reasons. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, And the government in London for so that reason decided not to take the advice advice of the of the military which is okay happens sometimes and they decided to take palestine okay but if you do why support the jews makes no sense can we start with very very basic things let's start with very because you know these things are important these are the foundation blocks upon which this entire podcast and the crisis that is faced today continues to be faced in the middle east is built when we say the palestinians who are we talking about exactly? What was Palestine like, particularly during this period that we're concentrating on, the Ottoman period? You know, when we read in the Bible of the Samaritans, when we hear about crusaders and the peasantry in the Holy Land in the Middle Ages, when we hear about the Bedouins in the desert, are they a mixture of all those different peoples? They are, they are uh, all Muslims, uh, most of them, except for a few Christians. And um, they are descendants of people who lived here for 500 years. But also, lots of them came as uh, workers from other Arab countries and, and stayed here. And so, um, some of them are Bedouins, some of them are peasants, some of them are not. So, it is a mixed um, population. It's, it's not a clearly defined nation as um, they seem to be today. And at the beginning of the 20th century, when this story opens, what's the breakup religiously of the population of Palestine? How, how many, uh, what percentage of Jews, Christians and Muslims are there at that point? There are about uh, 700,000 Arabs and about 85,000 Jews living in Palestine when the British arrive. So the Jews of 1917 are about 10%. Is that roughly the figure? About. And they are important to say they are not newcomers. They are Jews who, similar to the Arabs, have been living here for hundreds of years. In one of our earlier episodes, we were talking about the Kabbalistic communities in Safed, who interestingly were some of the first people to drink coffee. Uh, those, those communities were, were responsible for the, for the use of coffee for the very first time, along with some Sufi Muslim groups. Where, where were the Jewish populations? Safed, Jaffa, Akko, Jerusalem? They were in Jerusalem, in Safed, in Hebron, 
They were in various places over the country, but mostly, I would say, in, in Jerusalem and, and Zafet and, and Hebron. And again, we're sort of referring back to a previous episode in this podcast, but I know that um, William... Evelia Chelebi, who we've spoken about, he has a rather, I think, really interesting, instructive even, description of, of Palestine at the time. So Evelia Chelebi, when he visits on his journey through in the late 16th century, looks at Palestine from the point of view of a pious Sufi. And he sees a whole network of Sufi Muslim orders, uh, some beautiful mosques, and depicts a, a very full image of tombs and shrines and holy figures sacred to Ottoman Muslims. And Tom, let's talk about the other um, hand that claps here. When we talk about the Zionists and the Zionist movement, historically, when did it start? What are we talking about? The political Zionism started at the uh, end of the 19th century. It is usually associated with the founder of the Zionist movement, Theodor Herzl, who was a Jewish journalist in Vienna, Austria. And he founded the movement based on the assumption that Jews are a separate nation among the nations, not only a religion, but a nation. And uh, that the only way to end their long, long history of thousands of years in exile they were exiled from Palestine by the Romans, supposedly. And the only way to end that is to um, move them to a state of their own. Right. I mean, he, he referred to it as, he, he called it a Judenstaat, didn't he? And, and he talked about the, the restoration. It wasn't the creation, it was the restoration, he used the word, of, of the Jewish state. Restoring, restoring national existence in Palestine. It isn't just Palestine, is it? There are various other territories which are discussed, at least initially, by Herzl and, and the early Zionist movement. They talk about Uganda as a possible home for the Jewish people, and even the Yemeni island of Socotra. They talk about it, but they don't adopt that as a name. They talk about Uganda, or actually East Africa, not really Uganda, but somewhere in East Africa, as a result of the pogroms in the Ukraine. Yeah. The, the, the need is, is immediate. The Jews need a, a safe haven immediately. So even Herzl says, well, we Zionists have been able to negotiate with the British and uh, they're willing to give us that spot in, in East Africa. And the majority of the Zionist movement, the Zionist Congress, they send some people over there to check the place, but uh, they do not accept that. So Zionism never gave up the idea of having a state in Palestine. And then there's an, an attempt in 1896 when... Herzl actually tries to buy Palestine from the Ottoman Emperor, Abdul Hamid. That's right. He tried to buy it. He tries to bribe him. He tries everything. He talks to heads of state and he does everything he can. He was a very, very influential journalist. But Abdul Hamid turns this idea down. He said, I cannot sell even a foot of land for it does not belong to me, but my people. My people have won this empire by fighting for it with their blood and have fertilized it with their blood. We will again cover it with our blood before we allow it to be wrestled away from us. Because it's holy to the Muslims and the Christians and the Jews. That's uh, the problem we still face today. We ought to just sort of, for a moment, discuss what's going on in the rest of the world. I mean, you know, Jewish people have, at this time, a litany of very valid complaints about pogroms going on in Eastern Europe, about being persecuted. You refer to the Romans, even, you know, sort of Richard II here, you know, that the, the Jewish people were not kindly treated in many parts of the world, were they? 
they were different times. There were times when, and in different countries, it's not one story of, of the Jews. Jews were treated differently in different countries, in different points of time. One thing, the, the one thing they do have in common is that almost everywhere, at some time, they were discriminated against, they were persecuted, they were slaughtered for the sole reason of being Jews. That can be Jews as a religion, it can be Jews as economic competition for somebody else, that can be Jews, especially later in time, Jews as a different race. Jews are probably not a race in the way we use them today, not in England. In England, it's even more confused because sometimes you say race when you, need, when you mean a nation. So that makes it even more difficult. And obviously hugely varied types of people from the Rothschilds hanging out with Lord Balfour and Mayfair through to kind of Yemeni goat herds um, uh, in, in distant Yemen. G- give us a picture of the, of the diaspora at the beginning of the 20th century. Jews live in every country and... In every country, there are at least some Jews who try to be part of the national identity or the collective identity, but in many countries are different identities. So what do I belong to? In Germany, I want to be a German. In, in Yemen, I'm obviously like a Yemen, but my religion is different. So my origins are different. Okay, so I'm not religious at all. So somebody else will not recognize me as such. I'm like a German. The Germans don't recognize you. I'm an Englishman. Ah, but the English don't recognize me. I'm an Indian. I live in Cochin. Well, enough people in India who don't recognize each other as Indians. But Jews are living uh, everywhere. There are about maybe 12 million Jews in the world or 10 million Jews in the world. And uh, they live everywhere. Yeah. But as you, as you say, you know, there, there's, there's a long history of Jews being persecuted. And, you know, in, in your words slaughtered in cases just because they are, are Jewish. Some people do believe, though, that Herzl's trigger, that the reason that he started calling for a Judenstaat, you know, that there should be a homeland for the Jews, was this anti-Semitism that swirled around the Dreyfus affair. At that time, how many people were calling, as he did, for a Jewish homeland? Not many. I think it's important to know that Zionism never attracted a majority of Jews. Not even after the Holocaust, not even today. Today, at most half, but probably a little less than half the Jewish population of the world lives in Israel. So most Jews have decided not to fulfill the Zionist dream. And I think that's, that's important. And there are some, as, as the Balfour Declaration is beginning to be discussed in London and the idea of a, of a Jewish homeland, there are some Jewish uh, figures in government such as Montague who worry this is to be a, a trigger for anti-Semitism and are very suspicious of the idea. Montague was a cabinet minister and he was arguing with another cabinet minister who was uh, Herbert Samuel. And Herbert Samuel advocated uh, Zionism and Montague feared that if the Jews say that they do not belong to the British nation, then why would the British nation accept them as Jews? And so that is, in fact, an an idea which even Herzl expressed. He said the anti-Semites will be our biggest allies because they will chase us out. They will chase us out. We will have no alternative but to go to Palestine. 
Montague uh, calls Zionism a mischievous political creed that would promote anti-Semitism. That's the quote from him. And yet, and yet, you have this, I mean, let's get back to Balfour, because this, you know, this is all about the Balfour Declaration. One thing that was astonishing to me, we just did an episode on Sykes-Picot, and Balfour was the man in the in the room who's putting digging his heels and saying, this is a bad idea, guys. You don't just arbitrarily draw a, a line in the sand and decide what nations are going to be created. He is articulating every worry that seems to go out of the window when it comes to this particular declaration of creating a state of Israel. Let's talk about that a little bit more. The story of the Balfour Declaration is so fascinating because it indicates a completely irrational decision. It reflects the idea that we need the Jews as allies in World War I because they are so powerful Obviously, the Jews are behind the Russian Revolution. Obviously, the Jews control the banks, control the media. The Jews will decide whether or not the United States will join in World War I. And so we need the Jews as allies. And that is completely fiction, that the Jews <laughs> have absolutely no influence anywhere as Jews. So anti-Semitic ideas in the sense of Jewish power actually promote this. Exactly. That's an anti-Semitic attitude. But it's an admiration also, they fear the Jews and they admire them. Now, why do they admire them? Because the Jews are the people of the Holy Land, of Christianity, of God. And Balfour and also David Lloyd George, the prime minister, they are devoted Christians and they are Christian Zionists. They dream of returning the Hebrew people to their country. And that is quite, quite Amazing. That also explains why people like um, Chaim Weizmann, who's represented the Zionist movement, was treated as if he's uh, king of the Jews. And why there is a, a scene where Weizmann is, is invited to dinner at Balfour's house. And at the end of the dinner, Balfour walks Weizmann home in, in London. And when they get to Weizmann's home, Weizmann goes with him back to his home. And then when they get to Balfour's home, they go to Gogbento. So they go up and back and forth on the street of, of London. And the next day, in the cabinet meetings, you can read the sentence coming from Balfour, I am a Zionist. Why are you a Zionist? Mm. Why are you a Zionist? Very strange. So it's this combination of, of admiration and fear of pro-Jewish and anti-Jewish both are completely irrational, and that's the explanation of Balfour. I mean, that's so, that's so fun. And you know what? On the other side of the pond, also, the, the, the classicist love, or if you like, the, the deeply Christian held love of this this romanticized notion of, a, 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 of, of what the Bible said is so. I mean, I, I read somewhere Warren Harding, Warren G. Harding, who was president of the United States. 1921 to 23, only a short time. But that, this is a quote from him. It's impossible for anyone who has studied all the service of the Hebrew people to avoid the faith that they will one day be restored to their historic national home and there enter a new and yet greater phase of their contribution to the advance of humanity. Christian Zionism, Christian Zionism is an old thing. It's, it's, it comes back in the 18th century, 17th century, 19th century. They are, they are Christian Zionists, Christians who believe that the Jews should be allowed back to their to their country. And so it's not even a new idea then, but a man like, like David Lloyd George, the prime minister, he once told David Ben-Gurion, and I think he also wrote in his, in his memoirs, that 
He knew the names of rivers and mountains in Palestine long before he knew names of places in, in, in England or in Wales where, where he comes from. He knew names of biblical kings long before he could cite kings of England. So this is these are people who are really grown up on the Bible. And and these English people have, have come across the geography of, of Israel-Palestine only in their classics classes and in their Bible classes. Mm. And so they don't know any Ottoman history. They don't know what happened there in Byzantine times or uh, during the during the Ottomans. They know nothing about that time. It's, and, and their only recognition of this territory is from is the bells it rings from those those Bible classes. That's the that's the major one. It's not that they don't have strategic uh, thoughts like we we need to take Palestine. By the way, one reason to take Palestine is lest the French take it. God forbid. So um, they do have some rational explanations. But the thing is that is so typical for the English attitude to to Palestine is that there is no one policy at all. Everybody has their own policies. Everybody writes beautiful letters, uh, uh, papers. There are lots of beautifully written strategic papers they are all they all come from Eton or from Oxford where they learned how to write beautifully they seem like frustrated uh, writers or poets in, the, in their in their paper but every paper says something different yeah and yeah. so this is so typical about British policy but also policy. foreign policy is also very very different because you know let us not forget I mean we did the whole episode on Lawrence uh, of Arabia in the last episode Promises have been made to Arab leaders. You know, the Sharif has been promised that if you will rise up with the British, certain right. lands will be delivered unto you. So, so I suppose I, I, what I'm really fascinated with is, is when this becomes public, it is running contrary to the promises the British have made to the Sharif. Some British made promises to some Arabs. Okay, this is this is very important because. Um, Yes, some promises were made. Now, the thing about the Balfour Declaration is so unusual because it's a promise that the British kept. The British actually kept their promise, which is very, very rare in, in diplomacy. And <laughs> and that's, <laughs> yes, <laughs> it is, really, they kept their promise for the next 30 years. They um, assisted the Zionists to lay the infrastructures for the, for the state of Israel. It's called in in Arabic, isn't it? The the Balfour Promise. They call it the is it the Wad Balfour. And on the 9th of November, nineteen seventeen, as William alluded to earlier, this letter is released in the Jewish Chronicle in London. What is the immediate reaction, both from both sides, to this letter being made public, Tom? The Arabs obviously rejected it. Uh, some people in in England rejected it, and quite early, actually concluded that it was uh, a wrong thing to do and yet this is what what this this was the basis for the for, for the next 30 years because I mean, presumably because the jewish population in in palestine was only 10% of the population and and so this promise which is made to have a, a homeland for the jewish people without somehow infringing the rights of the non-Jewish population is a promise that can't possibly be kept. It's like saying uh, we're going to build a dam, but we're also going to look after the rights of the, uh, of mm. the people whose, whose villages are being flooded. It cannot be kept. The idea was to move millions of Jews to Palestine. And for example, David Ben-Gurion's Zionism said to have as much land as possible, not necessarily all of Palestine, but as much of possible, much of Palestine, to have as many Jews as possible living in that part of Palestine and as few Arabs as possible. Mm. That was the, the idea. 
the British establishment, which is brought up on the Bible and is brought up on the classics uh, and knows about the Jewish people, knows virtually nothing about the Palestinian people, the, the, the Muslim and the Christian inhabitants of Palestine. And this is a slightly later quote from 1937 of Winston Churchill, but it gives an idea, I think, it gives very well the attitude that, that, that Churchill and Lloyd George have about the what they simply refer to as the non-Jewish inhabitants, the 90% of people in Palestine who are not Jewish at this point. And this is the quote. I do not agree, writes Churchill, that the dog in the manger has the final right to the manger, even though he may have lain there for a very long time. I do not admit that right. I do not admit, for instance, that it is a great wrong that has been done to the Red Indians of America or the black people of Australia. I do not admit that a wrong has been done to these people by the fact that a stronger race, a higher grade race, a more worldly wise race, to put it that way, has come to take their place. That language is shocking, isn't it? Higher grade race. It's a shocking quote, but it, it, it gives an, an idea of just the, not only the kind of lack of any understanding of, of, of the people who are living there, the 90% of the people who are living there at the time, but also gives an idea of, of the, yes, the prejudices which are in operation. I want to take us back, though, to the, the heat of the furnace, if you like, which is the end of the First World War. So a peace conference has been called. It's uh, happening in Paris. The terms for the defeated powers are going to be laid out by the victors. The Treaty of Versailles comes from this, this moment in history. So what happens? What happens is that in those days, uh, the, the major powers of the world treated the world as a, as, as a cake and, and sliced it into different slices. So everybody gets a piece of land. And so they treated Palestine as something to, to argue about. The French and, and, and the British decided to decide, divide it among, among themselves. And so that's called the Sykes-Picot uh, Agreement, which uh, is really only um, a piece of history and not very significant anymore because eventually the British decided to enter Palestine. They sent uh, the, the army uh, in, in 1917, the, the British army came through Egypt under uh, General uh, Allenby and uh, occupied Palestine. And when they came, the entire population received the British as liberators, Arabs and Jews alike, because the last years of the Ottoman rule in Palestine were terrible for everybody, with very, very um, cruel oppression, uh, hunger. It's terrible. And so when the when the British finally arrive, they are they are received as there's all those photographs, aren't there, of, of Allenbury arriving at Jaffa Gate in Jerusalem, uh, with the population in the streets and uh, that's um, right. And they were received by both Jews and Arabs, both Muslims and Christians, as sent from heaven. In fact, the Arabs call Allenbury Al Nabi, which is. Uh, the, the prophet from God, they, that, that's the way they, they pronounce Allenby. And uh, uh, Orthodox Jews regard him as, as, as a messiah. And there are lots and lots of, of records about first meetings with, with these young children, uh, uh, soldiers, um, many of them Australians, by the way. And um, they also regarded themselves as liberating the Holy Land. There's one little little fact which, which indicates how irrational it was. David Lloyd George ordered Allenby to take Jerusalem before Christmas. If you are following a strategic plan, what difference does it make if it's before Christmas or after Christmas? Ah, 
But if you have a million soldiers in the, on the front and the war doesn't go so well for you, you really want a Christmas present for your for your nation. And so that's actually once Jerusalem was taken, the church bells in London began ringing again. During the war, the, the bells wouldn't wouldn't ring. So wow, we have Jerusalem. So that's a big irrational thing, really. <laughs> so with the bells ringing in our ears, let's take this short break. Welcome back. So before the break, we had the church bells ringing in London. And what does that actually look like and feel like to the people who are living in the region, Tom? What, what are they expecting for the next few years? Because the British still have a mandate to run Palestine. First of all, they expect restoration of, of normal life because life under the Turks at the end was terrible. And so they receive the British as, as liberators. By the way, when the British arrive, most people in Palestine don't know yet about the Balfour Declaration. But after a few years of, of military rule, a civil administration is, is being created under the British. British create some bodies for, for Jews and Arabs to rule themselves, limited. But what they mostly do is they keep their promise and they help the Jews to create the infrastructures needed for independence. And Tom, you mentioned earlier this name, Herbert Samuel. He, he's Jewish, he's an ardent Zionist, and the British make him the first High Commissioner for Palestine, don't they? They do. He was, uh, I think, Minister for Postal Affairs before in, in England. But yes, he comes to Palestine believing, and actually he was right, that it's his mission to carry out the promise in the Balfour Declaration and, and help the creation of, of a Jewish state in Palestine. They, caught, they keep talking about homeland, but they, they actually all know that it is a statehood in Palestine, not necessarily all of Palestine. In fact, after a few years, part of that piece of land was given to the Arabs, which is, which is now Jordan. And on the ground, one of the first signs of, of this new order and, and what's going to happen is that some of the landowners who are often living in exile in Beirut or in D Damascus start selling large chunks of land, like the Jezreel Valley, for example. Uh, and the ordinary Palestinian workmen who are sitting on the ground suddenly find themselves evicted and turn up landless uh, refugees sitting in the streets of Jerusalem, having lost their land. That is correct. But obviously for... for the people coming in from Jews escaping pogroms in Russia, this is like a, a, a moment of, of vast celebration and excitement. Most Jews who come to Palestine do not live in agricultural areas, but they live in, in Jerusalem and, and in Sfat and in Hebron. Or Very soon, you know, uh, Tel Aviv developed. What year is Tel Aviv founded? Tel Aviv is founded, I believe, in 1906. Is it? Possible. And it is, it is literally a new city on, on the sand dunes. It is built on the sand. It is built on the sand, out of sand. And it is one of the things which really happen under, under Jewish presence, just like creating a, a Hebrew university on, on the Mount of Scopus, which is, which is quite amazing, and, and cities and everything. So this was all developed, and people come from all over the world, mostly as refugees. Jews in Eastern Europe, for example, prefer immigrating to America. They do not come, all of them. When do, when do they come? They come beginning to come in the 20s when it gets very difficult to, to immigrate to America or, or England had anti-immigration laws. And so then 
they, they more of them come to Israel. And of course, when the Nazis get to power, Jews from Germany come to Palestine. So most Jews who come here are actually refugees. By the way, there's also a massive immigration of Arabs from Arab lands because once um, Palestine gets developed and modernized, there is uh, lots of workplaces for, for Arabs. So 36 to 39, the Nazis are, are, are gathering power and the, the scale of the immigration of Jewish refugees increases massively. But you also get, even before this, the beginnings of Palestinian resistance to this. Talk to, talk, talk to us about the Great Revolt. The Arabs gradually develop their own national aspirations and uh, gradually develop means to fight for their independence. So they have, so they called it Arab revolt, so they, lots of different names. But in 1936, they actually begin a whole series of strikes and they regard the British as enemies. And um, that is not really true. But of course, once they conduct actions of uh, resistance, the, the, the British put them down very harshly, the way they did it in other colonies. What, what kind of thing, Tom, what kind of thing do the British do? Arbitrary arrests, curfews, destruction of houses, um, torture, uh, expulsions. Extrajudicial killings, collective punishment. Even aerial bombardment at times. What bombardment? Whatever you do to fight terrorist uh, resistance. Twenty thousand Palestinians are killed at this point, and villages reduced to rubble. And this takes, in a sense, the the main military strength of the Palestinians is crushed just before they're going to need it uh, in 1947 to eight. That many of their leaders are exiled, many of their fighting men are killed or, or, or jailed or expelled. The Palestinian Arab society in Palestine is weaker than the Jewish society. For example, there is no compulsory education among among the Arabs. Lots of lots of Arabs don't read and write. So uh, and so the Jews are are have a much much more modern and better organized society. But I think I have I have. Um, the question of the of the British is is very interesting. Some some say they were pro Arab and anti Jewish, or anti Jewish and pro Arab, or whatever they were. And uh, the truth is that they were pro British. And there is a story of of an official who wears uh, an Arab turban on his head when he when he talks to Arabs, and a European hat when he talks to Jews. And he once finds himself in a clash between Jews and Arabs, so he hurries to the next telephone and asks his superior, what hat do I wear here now? <laughs> and his superior says, wear them both. <laughs> now, at, at the end of this whole story, there is a, um, a British official who is really fed up with everything that happens here. And he says, I dislike them equally. Arabs and Jews and Christians in Syria and Palestine, they are all alike, a beastly people. The whole lot of them is not worth a single Englishman. Wow. That's the attitude of they had. That, yeah. That's what, and so, and that's true as late, that at the latest begins in 1937. 
when they realize that this is a country that can't be ruled, so why don't they get, got, get out immediately? Because 37 is already close to 39, and 39 is already close to war, and in general, they hate taking big decisions. So what they do is they appoint a committee of inquiry. That's, that's what they do. There are lots and lots of committees of inquiry to inquire everything, and thereby they gain time, but very soon they realize that it was a mistake to get in in the first place. So, I mean, it, this sort of turmoil that you've described so beautifully, it chugs along and along and it sort of limps across the line to 1948. And then the, the British say, right, you know what? We've got, a, we've, got a, we've got an out here now. We've actually got the end of our mandate. United Nations, your problem. And they just kind of shunted over the table. That's right. And, and just to give a bit of context here, the, there is some quite serious terrorism against the British. Most famously, the King David Hotel, which is blown up with a thousand people killed within it, with the future Prime Minister Begin, uh, who puts the bombs down. But that's not, I think that's what adds perhaps to their decision, gives them some urgency, but that's not what makes them leave. The British Empire is at its end. They have given up India. The jewel of the crown in Palestine is at most a a, a, a backyard for them. So, so it's it's nice to have like a lovable pet, but it shouldn't cost too much. And in fact, the final analysis: why do we need to get out? Is written by the by the by the exchequer by the by the. It's a financial thing. It costs too much. This was the, this was one of the main reasons for leaving India too. Just the British had no money after the war; they couldn't afford to to hold India. Exactly. So the so the days of the empire are over. So another explosion of uh, an explosion of this or other hotel really doesn't change uh, that fact. Well, so now it's sort of the the United Nations issue to deal with, and the United Nations votes on the 29th of November 1947 to partition Palestine into two states, one for the for the Jews and one for the Arabs. How does that go down, Tom? This goes down very well in Israel because this is the first time that the world, or if you want the second time, the first time was at Balfour Declaration, but the second time the world really decides that the Jews deserve some kind of independence in Palestine. But uh, it doesn't go very well because uh, the map is impossible the number of Jews who are sitting in refugee camps after the Holocaust in Europe need to live somewhere. And obviously, the United States is not willing to take them all in, about 200,000 Jews, Holocaust survivors. And so um, the inevitable really happens. And that is a war between Israel and the Arabs, not only the Palestinians, but also Arab countries. This is inevitable if you want beginning in 1917 if you look at it historically uh, that's the sad truth it is it it had to lead to to war and when these these arab nations are all in a sense all looking for their own interests all mutually distrustful the the troops in lebanon and the troops in egypt don't trust each other the transjordan is busy trying to make a deal to, to take over what will become known as the West Bank and, and following his own interests and trying to reach an agreement with the with the Israelis to let him have that territory. So it, it's a mess. And in the middle, the, the ordinary Palestinians are caught uh, in the middle of this. And they call this the Nakba, the catastrophe, don't they? Yes, it is a catastrophe. And uh, it is uh, the major element of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, still today. 
Now, the truth about the Nakba is that Arabs left, Arabs escaped, Arabs were forced to leave, forced to escape, driven out. All of this happened in different points in time, in different places. Tell us about Plan Dalet, which uh, one reads a lot about, this this plan to begin to, in modern terms, ethnically cleanse a lot of the Palestinian rural population. No, there is no uh, written order to uh, expel all Arabs. There is a plan, uh, a, a military plan, that takes into account the possibility that these or other villages will 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 resist and and in that case if they if they resist the village has to be destroyed and and the people expelled but uh interestingly enough there is no such thing as an overall there is no paper which says we need to expel the arabs what does exist is the is the general concept and the general aspiration expressed for example by david ben gurion we have an expression in Hebrew which which we had a very difficult time to to translate to English when my books were translated to English, and that's the spirit of the commander. The commander radiates that wish, and so the commander everywhere in in this or that village knows what is expected of him. But there is no written plan. Let's let's um, let's get rid of the Arabs or something. It's it's in the air. And when you say what is expected of him, what, what 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 are you talking about? It is expected of him to expel Arabs. Yes, uh, it's, uh, most mo- most of them, except for 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 example, uh, Christian residents of Nazareth. Why? Because the New York Times or, or the Times of London, if you want, they they are they are there, and so we don't expel Christians from Nazareth. But other than that leave as much land as possible empty of Arabs. But having said that, it is also interesting that David Ben-Gurion specifically prevented the occupation of the West Bank, which is now in Israel, including East Jerusalem, the old city, and including Gaza. Why is he preventing the, uh, the, the, the occupation of these areas? because they are by now filled with, with refugees. We, so he says to himself, we've just gotten rid of them. Why would, I, why would I occupy them again? And that, I think, is the major difference between those days and 1967, when, when, we, when we occupied all these. All these yeah. Places. So, I mean, after this, this conflict in the Middle East, this conflagration, uh, it dies down. I mean, what we're left with is 750,000 Palestinians estimated. That's more than half the population who are rendered stateless. I mean, they're refugees. Uh, And the name Palestine is effectively wiped off the map, isn't it? It's it's no longer an entity. No, half of it is occupied by by Jordan. Jordan also did not give the Palestinians independence, and many Arab countries kept the refugees and refugee camps as as a as, as a weapon in 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 the conflict. So uh, that is also not really fair to to the Palestinians. So the Palestinians are are really victims of the situation, and no one is really representing their interests. The the Emir of Transjordan is looking after his interests. The British just want to get out. The Israelis want want their state. Nobody is representing them. To me, one of the even worse elements of, of that tragedy is that they were not allowed back. I mean, you, you can argue with Israel, how did it happen that so many people actually were gone? But the major point is that uh, Israel never allowed them back. So Israel to the present day said, 
says uh, well they actually run away or escaped or hoping to come back and defeat the Israeli army or something but uh, the fact is that they were not allowed back can I can I read you two two uh, quotes I mean we're coming to the end of our time together and it just perhaps might be useful for you to use as a springboard as to where we are today and whether there's any hope, glimmer of hope in the future for, for peace in this region. This is attributed to David Ben-Gurion in 1948, and it, it speaks to what you've been just talking about. Uh, we must do everything to ensure the Palestinians never do return. The old will die, the young will forget. And that's uh, uh, from David Ben-Gurion, they say, in 1948. Benjamin Netanyahu has said much more recently that this is the crystallized situation, that if the Arabs put down their weapons today, there will be no more violence. If the Jews put down their weapons today, there will be no more Israel. So we're sort of, sort of in between those two points in time. What do we see as the future? The first quote is so interesting because it comes from a man who leads a national movement of people who have not forgotten their homeland for 2,000 years. So <laughs> why would the Arabs forget theirs? That's a really quote which also is not typical of Ben-Gurion because Nobody was more aware of him that, that the Arabs do not forget and, and want to come back. And, and if they can, they will come back. So that's an unusual quote from him. Begurion said lots of different contradicting things. I don't know how the conflict can be solved today. If we had this conversation 40 years ago, I would probably tell you that by now we have given back Arab territories to the territory Arabs and they have their state and uh, all the conflict is, is history. I was very optimistic at the time, and I do not believe in it anymore. I just don't know how. There are some, lots of people all over the world who know exactly how to solve this problem, and I don't really see how it can be, how it can be solved. Tom, we recently had the anniversary of the Balfour Declaration, and there was a, a very muddled response even now to this uh, in Britain. Boris Johnson, who was then prime minister, celebrated it as a, as a great achievement of the British that they'd, in his words, laid the foundations for a, for a Jewish state. But do you think this is something that the British should be proud of or ashamed of or both? I mean, because we have led to, I mean, the, the Palestinians were 90% of the population when we took over in 1917. And when we left, they were largely refugees in refugee camps. Uh, and we didn't honor the promise made in the Balfour Declaration, that the non-Jewish population uh, would not have their rights threatened. Those rights have been systematically thrashed, both under the British and subsequently. How should we look on the Balfour Declaration now? It was very controversial, even at the time. And uh, we should look at it as a really irrational thing. That's, that's what happens when, when you take decisions under such a strong impact of your beliefs and your and your hopes and and your fantasies with 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 little knowledge of the territory and 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 no interest in the people that live there and that that's exactly so it, the the dangers of of irrational uh decision making that's that's i think what what the balfour declaration teaches us Tom, thank you very, very much. It's it's a very thorny issue to discuss, and, and this is one of many episodes we've had lately, including our, our look at the Armenian genocide and our look at Sykes-Picot, which has upset many of our listeners and, and pleased others. This, I'm sure, will be equally divisive because it's impossible to look at the Balfour Declaration and feel just one thing. It, it, it's a moment of rebirth for one people and a moment of catastrophe for another. And depending on which of those two peepholes you look through, you look at you see a completely different landscape. So, Tom Seger, thank you for trying to 
bridge this impossible gap with your vision. And we're very, very grateful for your time. From me, William Dalrymple. And me, Anita Arnand. Thank you very much. 